welcome to the Redeemer Central podcast. Redeemer Central is a church community in Belfast seeking to practice the way of Jesus and work for the peace and good of our city. For more information, please visit RedeemerCentral.com. Um, really lovely to see everyone. Um, happy. S- Happy September, if that's a thing. Um, uh, lovely to see some new faces here, and lovely to see our green builders back safe and sound in the building as well after quite a hectic week of travel uh, disruption. Um, we're all looking forward to hearing how you've got on. Um, lots of things kind of cooking and brewing in church life. We're kind of back into things at the start of this year. We're going to actually spend the next month or so in a series um, revisiting, reminding ourselves about the kind of church that we are, that we are building, that we want to be. Um, and so I'd love to talk today about that and the values that give us shape and form that we are as a community. So today we're going to talk about what does it mean to be a Jesus-centered church, which is right at the very heart of who we are as a, as a community. Um, you'll have heard that, perhaps that term from the frontier. Um, on several occasions, we're going to unpack it. Um, and it seems like the kind of redundant um, value. Of course, you're Jesus-centered because you're a church, but actually, so much can be at the center of what can organize church that replaces Jesus and his allegiance. I think it's really important for us to revisit that and to look at that and to examine that and see what it means for us. So we're going to look at how... It means, being a Jesus-centered church means it, it gives us the foundation of our faith, gives us clarity on everything else, it gives us unity in our diversity, and it gives us a model to uh, live by. Um, uh, I just, back from a week off, and uh, it was actually um, wee Owen's birthday last week, and it was also my birthday, and I got a wee treat, and I got along to the IMAX yesterday to see Oppenheimer, finally, and it was fantastic. Um, and no, 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 let's not do that. I've just wa- I've walked. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Very kind. Thank you. That was not uh, what I was looking for. Looking for, I walked straight into that, but thank you. Um, it was a retreat to be able to go out and to, to enjoy a movie like that, of course, and maybe many of you have seen it, but um, uh, obviously it's looking at the life of Robert Oppenheimer as a, one of the biggest figures of the 20th century particularly, uh, and as a scientist. Um, and scientists like to unpack and explain and test um, and find... The, the answers to their questions by repeating that process over and over and over again. Um, Beth and I, we also not only love to watch scientists in the big screen, but we love to sit down and watch a good police drama or a good detective drama. I know many of you love a bit of Line of Duty or whatever it is. Um, and I suppose that's another discipline where detectives try to put together or even try to explain a puzzle, try to figure out, looking at the evidence of what is going on in a particular situation. And there was actually a line, whether it's detectives or scientists, there was a line in the movie yesterday that I can't get out of my head, which 
which is kind of simple, but it said that theory can only take you so far. Theory can only take you so far. And there's something um, applicable about that to what we're looking at today, because to be Jesus-centered isn't that we've figured out Jesus, we've explained that we've found the evidence. Um, it's, it's something more than that. Um, and we're going to look at the Apostle Paul and how he explains that. In a letter to the church in Galatia, he says this, I want you to know, brothers and sisters, that the gospel that was proclaimed by me is not of human origin, for I did not receive it from a human source, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. A revelation of Jesus Christ. Everything that the apostle Paul taught, preached, and wrote was built on the foundation of this revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to him by God. There was no logic or puzzle or hypothesis or answer to find. There was no needle in a haystack, so to speak. Um, it was the, like we've been singing this morning, this morning, his eyes were opened. Something mysterious about that. But this is the Apostle Paul says that it is by the revelation given to me by God that I see Jesus Christ. And he was no rookie, of course. Paul knew his scriptures. He had his acumen when it comes to Bible college or seminary and his world. Um, he's very explicit that his vast knowledge of the scriptures, his formal training in interpretation was not how he came to know Jesus or to stake his life upon Jesus, but rather it was when God was pleased to reveal the Son to him. It's Galatians 1.15. Revelation, a way of seeing, a way of knowing, not certitude, but a sense, a deep inner knowing that there's something about Jesus that has been revealed to us. Branzan says that revelation is not the end, it is the beginning. Revelation is not the capstone, it's the cornerstone. Revelation is not where we arrive, it's where we begin. Jesus Christ is the revelation of God, but this cannot be known independent of God's action upon us. God must take the initiative in revelation, and thus this is the work of the Holy Spirit. The revelation of Jesus Christ is the only possible foundation for Christian faith. And we're talking about that today because we're about something here in Redeemer. We're, we're building something, a community, and that community is built upon this revelation that we have experienced, that our eyes have been opened to Jesus, to who he is, and that his way in the world is the way that we want to follow. Paul said to the Corinthians, the church at Corinth, he said, no other foundation can anyone lay other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ, which is, which is radical. This means that our faith, our faith, your faith, my faith, it's not dependent upon theology, actually. It's not dependent upon science, as much as we like that. It's not dependent upon the Bible, as much as we love the Scriptures. Our faith is primarily in the person of Jesus Christ, that we have seen in the life of Jesus in the face of Jesus, the divine, that the mystery that is invisible has been made visible. That he is the bedrock, the cornerstone, the foundation, and the scriptures bear witness to Jesus. 
But it is Jesus that is the foundation of our faith. And it feels kind of redundant, maybe, to say that in a Christian church. But as I say, so much of the church, sadly and unfortunately, is built upon other foundations. And we are called continually to remind ourselves and to practice and to, and to, and to confess that our foundation is Jesus the Christ. Jesus actually asked his disciples, who do you say that I am? And the disciples, they had different theories. They replied, are you John the Baptist? Are you Elijah? Are you Jeremiah? Are you one of the prophets? But then Jesus asked the all-important question, but who do you say that I am? And it was Simon Peter that said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered and said to Simon, bless you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And he goes on to talk about how Peter was the rock that the church was built upon. And so Peter, like Paul, did not figure out like Sherlock Holmes or test the hypothesis like Robert Oppenheimer. But he came by a mysterious revelation. He came to see in the eyes of his soul that Jesus is the one that is worthy, like we've been singing about, the one that is the foundation of everything that we know. Uh, the revelation of God. So being Jesus-centered is the foundation of our faith. Being Jesus-centered gives us clarity on everything else. That Jesus is the foundation of our faith because of the revelation of the Spirit of God means Jesus is the, the perfect image of God. A question asked by people for millennia, even today, is what does God look like? And people at the time of Christ, when he was walking there, were asking that very question, that God was invisible. John 1.18, 1 John 4.12, both tell us that no one has seen God. And it's the same question, well, the disciples actually ask Jesus in John 14, what is God like? Is God the angry God in the Old Testament? The retributive God in the Old Testament? Is God the more merciful God of the New Testament. When I open to this story, is that what God's like? It seems like God's different in different parts of the scriptures. Have you ever asked yourself the question, what is God really like? And it's the very question that Jesus came to answer. In fact, when he, the question the disciples ask him, Lord, we don't know where we are going, so how can we know? And it's to that question Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. For now on, you do not, for not, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Jesus basically says to his disciples that you have seen God if you've seen me, which is one way to upset a lot of people when you make claims like that. Radical that this rabbi from Nazareth was making these claims. And Jesus is not speaking in riddles. He's not contradicting the scriptures. Have the disciples seen God? And what does God look like? Philip goes on to say, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. Maybe you've had that question, Lord, if only you could show yourself. If only you could show up in this situation. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I have been among you for such a a long time. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father. 
how can you know, how can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and that the Father is in me? The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, it is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Incredible claims. Incredible claims that Jesus is making here. What does God look like? Jesus is saying, God looks like me. The mystery, Yahweh, the creator God, the creator of the cosmos, looks like me. Anyone who's seen me has seen the Father has seen the Father. I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Actually, Jesus is bemused at Philip's question. Show us the Father, Philip says. Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me, Jesus said. Jesus is, is clear. He's bringing clarity to everything. He's bringing clarity to this mystery that indeed when we look in his face, we are looking in the face of God. I and my Father are one. I think, again, I keep stressing this, but it's really important. It's been a really important thing for me to learn. In fact, the Christian life is not just about learning stuff. It's often about unlearning stuff. And I have had an awful lot to unlearn about what I think God is like. And it's this teaching that is really at the heart of what I would call a real reconstruction of my faith. When I look at the face of Christ, I see the face of God. And I used to think God was an angry, retributive God who was bloodthirsty. And I, and I now realize that the divine, the creator God, is exactly like Jesus. And that is the foundation of our understanding of God and the foundation of our Christian community here in Redeemer. It's really important for us to know that the center of our universe is Jesus. The center of this church community is Jesus. And at the center of all that we are building here is Jesus, that we're a Jesus people. And once we understand that Jesus is the image of God, the exact imprint of God's nature, and the only perfect theology, then we can answer some really important questions about what God is like that humans have often got wrong. We see in God loving union and we're truly invited to know him as love. So does God send the storm? No. God calms the storm. Does God cause the famines? No, he feeds the hungry. Does God inflict sickness? No, he heals the sick. Does God shun sinners? No, he welcomes them in. Does God condemn the guilty? No, he saves them. Does God blame the afflicted? No, he shows them mercy. Does God resent human pleasure? No, he turns water into wine. Does God take our side in our hostilities? No, he humanizes the other. Does God kill his enemies? No, he forgives them. Does God return with revenge on his mind? No, he comes with words of peace. When we see Jesus, we see God. We see God's character. There's an image that's going to come up, and we've used this before, which is like a silhouette of a face. Hopefully Mark will put it up on the screen. And with more light, a silhouette begins to reveal the face in this case in more and more increasing resolution, the more light that is shone upon it. And in a sense, that summarizes 
this unfolding revelation throughout the scriptures of the human experience and understanding of God. In the Old Testament, people had a shadowy understanding, a limited revelation of who God was, projecting onto him this angry God that was sending them into battle to slaughter their enemies, and on and on and on. And yet when we move into the New Testament and we see in the life of Jesus, he has come to reveal God to us. And that is like the silhouette, being illuminated with light, that we get to see in full resolution what God is really like. In fact, the Apostle Paul talks about this in Colossians 2. He says, these are a shadow of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. The reality is found in Christ. And that's the Apostle Paul talking about Old Testament teachings. When we ask the question, what does God look like? We're peering into a mystery of the community of the, of the triune God. But Jesus has come to make that mystery knowable, to make the invisible visible. And in him we see that God looks like Jesus. The Christian is the one who sees the face of God in the face of Christ. Branzan says that God is like Jesus. God has always been like Jesus. There has never been a time when God was not like Jesus. We haven't always known this, but now we do. God is like Jesus. And Jesus came to reveal the heart of the Father God to us. And in Christ, we see God. The greatest gift that we've received is Christ, because in Christ, we see God. The Word made flesh in the life of Jesus is the greatest gift that we will ever receive. So being a Jesus-centered church is the foundation of our faith. Being a Jesus-centered church is the clarity in which we see everything. Being a Jesus-centered church gives us unity in our diversity. There is a vision of church that we're sold out on in Redeemer, and we're trying our best to embody that, to enflesh that, to live it out. And that vision started in the New Testament and continues to this day. And the vision is a people that are united. A people that are united. Jesus' last prayer in John 17 is a prayer for unity. He actually prays. In fact, I'll read the passage. My prayer is not for them alone. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. So firstly, Jesus is not just praying for the disciples that are right in front of him. He's actually praying for us, the church, and everyone who would believe in him that's coming after. Jesus, this is a prayer that Jesus is praying on behalf of Redeemer Central, you could say, on behalf of every Christian. I pray also for those who will believe in me through their message. I, that all of them may be one. Father, just as you are in me and I am in you, may they also be in us so that the world may believe that you've sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, that they may be one as we are one, I in them and you in me, so that they may be brought to complete unity. Then the world will know that you sent me and have loved them even as you have loved me. This is the heart of Jesus in this prayer for unity, that his people would be one, would be united. And the New Testament church is a story of believers from every walk and background that are trying to make unity a reality despite their differences, despite their differences 
to be united in love. How do we actually do that? The New Testament helps us a lot with that. But ultimately, to be Jesus-centered is right at the heart of this, which is why this is such an important thing to teach again and for us to be rooted in as a community, that at the very center of our faith and our community here is not a confession of 30 things we believe, but it is the person of Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. And it means that as a community, we can be united despite our diversity. There's incredible diversity in the room here. There's a lot of difference in this room. There's a lot of different worldviews in this room, experiences in this room, paths that people have walked. Why are we all in a room on a Sunday morning together? Like, we wouldn't otherwise be here. Think about that. The thing that brings us together is not that we all vote for the same political party or that there's a Union Jack or a Tricler up on behind me on the wall or that there's like an agenda. The reason why we're a community is because of Christ and we're totally on board with that vision and Him. He is worthy of it all. In fact, there's no one else we've really found to be worthy. We keep putting our trust in leaders of all shapes and sizes and they keep letting us down. And it seems like Jesus is reliable. He is strong and he is able. And it is a vision of Jesus that should compel us, that then sends us out into the world to make a difference. Stealing my thunder a little bit. It's why it's so important for us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus and to unite around this common confession. We confess Jesus is Lord, and we receive the filling of the Holy Spirit. And anywhere that that's happening, anywhere that there's someone confessing that Jesus is Lord, and there's a filling of the Spirit, there's a Christian. And when there's a bunch of them, there's a church happening. That's really all it is. Followers of Jesus right across this globe despite that we could go to another country in the world and have nothing in common with those people other than being fellow human beings, of course, and yet we can actually unite around a confession that we have seen the divine in the face of Christ and we can break bread together. There's something beautiful and mysterious about this. Followers of Jesus, followers of the way of the Messiah, the diversity in the Old Testament is incredible. Jews, Gentiles, male, female, slave, free, different people groups, nations, tribes, cultures, languages, ethnicities, genders, sexualities, experiences. The job of the church is to, is to practice, is to, is to enflesh, is to incarnate and live out genuine unity in that diversity. If we all looked the same, something would be going very wrong here. And it's really difficult, I think, for us as human beings to get around that idea because social science tells us that we like to be around people that are like us. I mean, it, it, we just do. Like, there's something tribal about being human. There's a tribal aspect to our nature. We feel safe. And the tribalism can then become suspicion of the other, and then the suspicion can lead to hatred of the other, and it can come to, that can lead to a full-blown othering of anyone that is different than you. And it is into that cycle that the gospel interrupts it and says no, and compels us to embrace genuine unity across genuine differences. There are differences in this room, different opinions, different perspectives, no matter the topic or, the, or the, how to raise kids, 
how to do life, how to spend your money, whatever. There is so many differences in this room, and yet it is, it is remarkable that in Christ we can have a commonality, we can have a communion, and we don't leave our identity at the door, but we bring it in. Somehow the mystery of the Christian church is that that is possible. I don't think it can be found anywhere else. There is a unique unity in diversity when we are radically Jesus-centered, not Bible-centered or theology-centered or worldview-centered, but Jesus-centered, that Jesus is Lord. That's it. We confess his life, death, and resurrection. That is our confession. And there's a term that Dan and Steph and I, and we stumbled upon a a couple of years ago, it was actually in a, I think it was actually in a Zoom call, if I remember right, and just someone coined this term, a bandwidth of grace. And you'll have heard us talk a little bit about that, a bandwidth of grace, which is, it really summarizes, what well, I think it's a practice that we have here. If this is going to be, if this is going to work, if this is going to work, if we're going to be able to build a community here where people genuinely feel welcome, because we want to go somewhere together as a community, we're not going to just stay where we're at, where we're at. We're not camping out here. We really want to welcome our city in. We want to go out to our city and bless our city. We want to bring the gospel to our city. But in order to have genuine unity and diversity, we should have a bandwidth of grace that our heart and that our posture is one of love, <clears throat> is one of forbearance for one another. The book of Ephesians talks about that a lot. It emphasizes posture a lot. Posture being the way you hold your beliefs. The way you hold your interpretations. The way you hold your preferences and opinions over and above everything else. And as I've said before, beliefs are really, really important. But the way you hold them perhaps is even more important or as important because we believe in Jesus, we believe in his life, we believe in his death, we believe in his resurrection. We confess the Apostles' Creed, the, uh, the Nicene Creed, the oldest summations of the Christian faith for 2,000 years. We confess those beautiful, simple, powerful, radical confessions of faith. And there's an awful, 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 awful lot of stuff that's not in the Apostles' Creed or the Nicene Creed. It is a distillation at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian, completely centered on Jesus. I remember when I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem last November, uh, the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, it's divided up into all these different areas, and it's kind of remarkable to see. Some of you will have been there, and there's different churches have different jurisdic jurisdictions over certain parts of the church, because this is the holy site where Jesus well, it's built upon Golgotha, and it's also built upon the site where Jesus' tomb was. So this is like the center of the universe, really, in that sense, of the Judeo-Christian world. This is right at the center, and the church is divided up into these different jurisdictions. No one has a right over the building. Think of it like if it was this building, you'd have the Eastern Orthodox would have the prayer room, the Catholics would have the study, um, the Charismatics would have the ground floor, um, the Pentecostals would have the upper floor, different areas, and all of the ornamentation, all of the artwork, all of the expressions of faith are all different. You walk through, it's kind of like a 
Disney World of the Christian world in a sense. And if you go in at a certain, and you'll, they all have certain times to worship. So the whole week is divided up into, so the Catholics can get 11 o'clock on a Tuesday morning, and the Eastern Orthodox can get at 3 o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. And it, but there's, I, I can't remember the amount of people that have got claim on a particular, and that, that is the way in which they're attempting some form of unity in their, in their diversity. But it, it kind of just blew me away that that was the arrangement but it also blew me away that all of these people can, 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 can agree on one thing. <laughs> they confess Jesus. They have all these different ways of worshiping and different ways of organizing themselves and different ways of expressing their faith. And yet, they're all captivated by Jesus. There's something about Jesus that has captivated them. And it has captivated us too. We believe in Redeemer the Church as a diverse group of people gathered in Jesus' name, filled with the Spirit, are called to bring liberation to the world. And for everything else, a bandwidth of grace. For everything else, a bandwidth of grace. Not that everything else doesn't matter, because lots of things matter, but there's a bandwidth of grace, and our unity is in Jesus. And I believe that we're entering into this season as a church where we're being reminded and called again to prioritize centering Jesus in our lives, in our relationships, and in our communal life as a church. And reminding ourselves again as we kind of start off the September term again that Jesus is at the center. And we can disagree about a whole bunch of stuff, but we can come together in love and forbearance around Christ. Because that is the heart of Christ's prayer, that his disciples would be one, just like he and the Father are one. In other words, we hope that by that witness, the unity and diversity might actually be a gravitational pull to the world. Look at this image of the solar system. We've, we've used this a few times too, and it's a simple image. The sun sits at the center of the universe. If we want to increase the gravitational pull of our solar system, you need to increase the size of the sun. And it's a simple metaphor. Everything revolves around the sun, is held in the gravitational pull of the sun. The bigger the sun, the stronger the gravitational pull. And we live in a universe permeated by and held together by love. Colossians 1, 15 to 17. Revelation, or sorry, relationship is happening all around us. And you're invited into that dimension of daily awareness and experience. And Jesus prays that the love that passes between the persons of the Trinity, between the Father and the Son, would also be witnessed right here in our relationships with one another, with our love for one another. And that fight is a fight to push back against the illusion that we're not united. That we should not replace Jesus' call-in invitation with call-out culture, council culture. That we should contend to live in unity together despite our differences because we center everything around Christ who's the perfect revelation of the invisible God. And fourthly, being Jesus-centered is a model of how to be human. I don't know about you, but when I open my Instagram feed every day, somebody's trying to tell me how to be a human. 
on what matters. And usually there's like something to buy that's going to help me get there. People have a lot of experiences about, sorry, people have a lot of opinions about what fully human looks like, about what the full life looks like. And as a Jesus-centered community, what we're really saying is that Jesus is our model for how to be human. He is like the prototype. He's the one that's gone before us. So much that he's actually entered into death and come out the other side of it. And we, filled with the Spirit, can follow his way. If we want to be people drawn into the love of God, we keep Jesus at the center. And when we're a Jesus-centered people, we become a people that live by his way. He's the prototype. We're fully alive in him. And we're committed to following his way. His way is what? His way is the the way of self-sacrificial love. His way is the way of enemy love. His way is the way of welcome and inclusion and grace and honor and forgiveness and generosity and doing everything in love. And in a time of uncertainty, among the good evaluations that we're making of our lives and the kind of lives that we want to live and the kind of lives that are trying to be sold to us, everywhere we look, the kind of priorities that we should have, the many temptations that there are to put other things right at the center of our lives, maybe even right at the center of this community. We can get led into a universe with ourselves at the center or our agendas at the center, and that would be a mistake to drop Jesus from the center. We just hollow out our lives and would hollow out this community. But we will never go wrong And we will never misrepresent God in this world if Jesus is at the center and our lives look like his life. Our love looks like his love. Our priority to prioritize him in our lives, our family, our community. Like the solar system, everything will be held perfectly in that gravitational pull when we continue to fix our eyes on Jesus. When we organize our lives, even our collective life here around the life and teaching of Jesus, there will be some level of harmony, some level of we're entering into a way that is ultimately for our good and our flourishing. In our church life, everything will be held together only in Christ and nothing else, not right theology, not right views, not right vision. This is disputed, by the way, and a lot of churches will dispute this, that you need to have right theology. They think it's mad to have a church that doesn't have kind of at all. You get a book and you got to study it. You know, I mean, this might not work, or will it? I mean, are we? I mean, it is radical, but it's only going to work if we keep our eyes on Jesus. Because it's easier to organize when you kind of get the rules in place and get the membership cards, and it's easier. It's, it's, it's easier, but we are committed to a vision of being a, a diverse community united in the person of Jesus and nothing else, a bandwidth of grace for everything else, which leads us, as we come to a close, to do that together now, to celebrate the life of Jesus together, to confess Jesus here and now as we begin our week to confess him as Lord, to confess him, confess him as worthy, to invite his way of life into us again as we begin our week. So as we do that, I'd love to invite Fran, Fran up, and I'd love to invite you to stand 
as we come to the table of grace behind me. I'd love us just to take a moment, just, uh, just in the silence as we just let everything sit, the things that we've heard, the things that are bubbling up inside us. And then I'd love to read a passage of scripture to help us approach the table with the face of Christ in our minds. Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. We look at the sun and see the God who cannot be seen. We look at this sun and see God's original purpose in everything created. For everything, absolutely everything, above and below, visible and invisible, rank after rank after rank of angels, everything got started in him and finds its purpose in him. He was there before any of it came into existence and holds it all together right up to this moment. And when it comes to the church, he organizes and holds it together like a head does a body. He was supreme in the beginning and leading the resurrection parade, he is supreme in the end. From beginning to end, he's there, towering far above everything and everyone. So spacious is he, so roomy, that everything of God finds its proper place in him without crowding. Not only that, but all the broken and dislocated pieces of the universe. People, things, animals, atoms, get properly fixed and fitted together in vibrant harmonies, all because of his death, his blood that poured down from the cross. I really believe we walk on holy ground when we make a confession of Jesus as Lord. It's a stunning description and revelation of Jesus as the one in whom our faith is fixed. He was there at the beginning. He holds it all together. He holds the church together. He holds us together. He is strong and he is able and he is worthy. So Lord, as we come to the table, 
pray that you would open our spiritual eyes again to see you and to be captivated a little bit more. For you're worthy. May we be filled with your spirit. May we be a people that are like you and becoming more like you. May we give you permission and consent to have your way to shape us as a church. May nothing else sit at the center of this community but you. Your life, your death, and your resurrection as we confess you, Lord. As we come to the table of grace, we pray that we would experience again the mesmerizing, scandalous, beautiful, redemptive, affirming love of Christ in the bread and in the wine. That we may be reminded that you are for us and that nothing can separate us from your love. And we pray this in your beautiful name. Amen. Amen. Let's worship and come to the table as Fran Fran lead us. So I throw up my hands and praise you again and again. Cause all that I have is a Father God, we thank you today for Jesus, and we thank you that he is faithful and good and true and beautiful and worthy of it all. And we confess the ways in which we have struggled to keep our eyes fixed, and we repent and we look again to you, Jesus, and ask that you would fill us with your Spirit. We thank you, Jesus, for the way you've been faithful to people even in this room where things have been taken from them. We thank you, Lord, that no one can take you from us. That no one can take you from us. That you're at the center of our faith. That when even church itself can disappoint when the doors can be closed, when there is grief and heartache, no one can take you from us. And so, Lord, I pray that you would cause devotion to rise up and gratitude in this community, that we would be known as a people who are passionately in love with you, Jesus sold out for you. Would you empower us 
to walk in your way and to love one another as we do. And it's in your name we pray. Everyone say it. Amen.